So this morning we're reading out of John 16, verse 1 through 15. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me and none of you asked me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Thank you, Lydia. Um, My name is Aaron Spurlock. I'm one of the uh, pastoral apprentices here. And uh, we're going to continue our sermon series in the book of John. But if you would, before we get going, join with me in prayer. Father, thank you. um, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you uh, that you have promised that it will not return void. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would... Use my words this morning uh, only as a uh, microphone for your word. Lord, may the words that come out of my mouth be glorifying to you. Um, Lord, may they resonate with the hearts of uh, the congregation before me. And um, Lord, will you convict us of our sin? Will you guide us in your truth? And uh, Lord, use your spirit to glorify your son. Lord, we love you. We pray this in your son's name. Amen. Um, so my wife and I are about to, I say about, probably six months from now, a little less than six months, going to be celebrating our five-year anniversary. Um, and yes, awesome, yep. Um, and it is definitely worth a round of applause, just the idea of marriage and our marriage especially um, because she's a part of it. So that's why it's worth a round of applause. But before we got married, we uh, had premarital counseling. Um, We were going to set it up, like we already had it planned out to be pre-engagement counseling, which is like a new thing for Christians. Uh, Do pre-engagement counseling before you even make the commitment to make a commitment later. Um, So Anyways, we had that set up. I kind of jumped the gun and went ahead and proposed to her. And so it ended up just being uh, premarital counseling, which was great. One of the uh, tokens of advice that we were given that I am bringing before you today is that they told us to have a weekly and at the very least bi-weekly date night. And 
I'm here to confess that that has not happened over the past five years. I mean, we've, we've had date nights, but it was definitely not weekly or biweekly. But, uh, or at least not consistently anyways, but we do know that uh, that advice was really good advice uh, if your pockets can afford a babysitter or a meal out on the town, even if you just wanted to go out for a quick little date at Sonic or something like that. It's, it's very beneficial. And why is it beneficial? Um, we've noticed that in the seasons that we actually did that well, uh, we were always kind of on the same page. Um, and it's, I mean, not always going to be that way, but it leans towards that way more so than if you don't have those little check-ins, those date nights. That's exactly what it was. It's like our, our life is, um, is kind of chaotic. Everybody's life is chaotic, moving a thousand miles an hour. And then uh, it's always good, whether it be your spouse or a friend or a family member, to just kind of say, hey, let's press pause. Let's just unwind. Let's hear each other's burdens. Let's bear one another's burdens. And let me into your heart, right? Um, and what I love, and here's the connection, what I love about John's gospel is that it kind of seems like that's what's happening um, as you read through the chapters. We've already, we've already talked about this multiple times, and we're kind of in the heart of it right now, the heart of the date night, so to speak. Um, at the beginning of John, uh, from chapters 1 through 10, John kind of gives us a flyover of the three years of ministry that Jesus had in his life. Touching on some key points, some, some signs that point to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing upon Jesus that we might have eternal life. But then chapter 11 comes and it's like this screeching halt, right? Or maybe, maybe just this drastic slowdown. And now we're going to zoom in and we're going to look at the last week of Jesus' life. And so we enter into Bethany in chapter 11, and then we get to chapter 13. And it's not just Jesus's last week, it's Jesus's last night, his final hours with his disciples. And in these final hours, he, John ends up spending about, well, he ends up spending not about five chapters um, on these final hours. Now, this is the same John who effectively says at the end of his gospel that, you know, there are a lot of other signs that Jesus did. There are a lot of other teachings that he gave, but I just didn't have the time or resources to pin them all down. In fact, I don't even think that the world has enough time or resources that could contain all the things that Jesus did. So why did John spend, and I did the math, uh, what was it, 2,000? 968 words, and that's in Greek, not in English, uh, 2,968 words of his over 15,000 on this night. It's almost as if he wants us to take this pit stop, this check-in, this date night with Jesus. It's almost as if he's inviting us to this table with him. Almost 16% of his gospel is dedicated to these last hours. Now, as he and his disciples come to the most cataclysmic moment in their lives, in fact, the most cataclysmic moment in all of the universe, 
what is it that Jesus is teaching them? What is the theme? If you read through chapters 13 through 17, what is a theme that's going to come up over and over and over again? And as I was reading this past week, it might be because I was focusing in on the helper and the third person of the Trinity. But if you read through these five chapters, what you're going to see is that Jesus is explaining to these men how the Trinity operates. He wants them to understand and wants them to know without a shadow of a doubt who the triune God is. John says at the end of his gospel, I've written these things so that you may know that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus Jesus was very clear. I have come from the father and I'm going to go back to the father. And he says this over and over and over again, preparing them for what's to come. He says, but don't worry. Let your hearts not be troubled because I'm going to be sending the helper. Another helper is what he says in uh, chapter 14, verse 16. And that word, another, there is, uh, I believe, if I remember correctly, I didn't write it down, I should have, uh, alos, and that is uh, another, or is that, that's where we get our uh, word in English, ally. So it's, a, it's another helper, as in like the same kind. It's not like a different type of helper. It's of the same kind, of the same divine nature. I'm sending you the third person of the Trinity. I was the first helper. I'm sending you another helper. Now, I don't know about you, but if I had one night to live and had one meal left with my closest friends or with my wife and kids, the last thing that's on my mind is going to be, man, I really need to make sure their theology on the Trinity is spot on. I mean, I love theological discussions, but just naturally, I'm not going to think, man, this is what I need to tell them. What I, what I know that I'll need to tell them is that I love them. I'll need to settle any disputes that I have with, the, with people that I love I'll need to make sure that my wife is is set up and knows what to do next whenever I am no longer around, and my kids as well. I would want to make things, make sure things are in order. But Jesus understands that if they know him, then they know the Father. And that knowledge of, of Jesus the Son and God the Father is given to them because of the empowering and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And so he says, I want you guys to know. I want you to be sure of these things. Now, why does he want them to be sure? We see that in our first verse, chapter 16. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away to keep you from falling away. And he goes on um, in verse two, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. They will do these things because they have not known the father nor me. What's the distinction between Jesus's disciples, you and I, in the rest of the world is that we know the Father and we know the Son. 
I have said these things to you that when their hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. Now, we're going to come back to verse 2 in a little bit, um, but look at verse 3 and 4. One more time. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. As we go through this passage, what we're going to see is that the helper is the one who guides us into truth. He's the one that convicts us of our sin of unbelief. This knowledge and this belief go hand in hand. Obviously, that when, when, the, when the Holy Spirit regenerates our hearts, we have faith in Christ, but we're not going to have any faith unless there's some sort of knowledge. Now, I'm not saying that we need to be sure of the Trinity. We need to have that down pat in order to be a Christian. I'm saying that some sort of knowledge is what, is what allows us to feel that conviction, right? So look back at, at David whenever he was guilty of, uh, of adultery and then committing murder to try and cover up that adultery. It was the prophet Nathan that brings this to his attention and says, you have sinned. And what does he do in response? He writes Psalm 51, by the conviction of the spirit brought to him by the knowledge of another man seeing it in his life. And he brings this to him and says, you are the one that is guilty of the sin. Jesus wants them to be sure that they know who Jesus is is. Others will mock you just like they're about to do to me because they have no knowledge of me, nor do they have knowledge of the one who sent me, but you know. Goes on, continuing in uh, verse uh, 4b, I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Now, you might be like me and uh, might be whenever you read this or hear this, you might have thought, I could have sworn that we went over this before that, that maybe Peter or Another disciple said, hey, Jesus, where are you going? Why are you telling us that you're leaving? And is Jesus not kind of contradicting that? Yeah, that definitely happened in in chapter 13. Peter says in uh, verse 36, uh, Lord, where are you going? Literally those words. And Jesus just says, you haven't asked me where I'm going. Did Jesus forget that Peter asked him that? Well, to illustrate this point, um, I'm going to let you in uh, a little bit further into my marriage with Andrea. I don't know if any of you other guys in here uh, are guilty of this, but it's almost a daily practice, and I promise you I'm trying to grow in this. Uh, but I'll often ask Andrea a question just to ask the question. I like, and she gives me an answer, and it just goes in one ear, out the other. Like, I'm, and then I ask her again, and she's like, Aaron, I, I literally told you 30 minutes ago, right? That's kind of what happens with Peter here. He asked Jesus, hey, where are you going? 
And then Jesus gives him the answer, where I'm going, you cannot come. Peter hears this, the other disciples hear this. They ask him a couple more follow-up questions, but ultimately they check out at this answer because Jesus still sees in them two chapters later that their hearts are troubled, that they didn't listen to part two. They listened to part one, where I'm going, you cannot come with me. But then going into chapter 14, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Another another form of the Trinity, another theme of the Trinity right there. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Now, what Jesus was revealing and saying that you have not asked me where I am going. It's not just, hey, you haven't said these words because that is what happened. Peter did say these words. He did ask the question. What he's revealing is that they could not care less about what Jesus is doing. They are only concerned that they aren't able to go with him. They're so self-absorbed. When Jesus says, you cannot come with me, they checked out. What Jesus is revealing here is a, is a, a failure to meet a core, a central principle of the Christian faith. And that is to be empathetic towards one another. Jesus says this over and over again this night uh, during the farewell discourse. It is love one another. Love one another. Jesus has displayed this over and over again for his disciples. He was loving whenever he met with a woman at the well. He was loving whenever he healed the paralytic man or the blind man or fed the 5,000. He saw a need. He felt compassion towards these people, and he tried to meet that need. Jesus, in his darkest hour, he's about to be sweating drops of blood because of his anguish that he's facing the wrath of God and they can only see as far as hey I'm not allowed to come with you so I'm out Paul says in Galatians 6 2 bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ Jesus says the, the most important commandments is that you love God and you love your neighbor. How do we do that? By bearing one another's burdens. That's how we fulfill the law of Christ. So you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, whose burdens today, tomorrow, the rest of the week, whose burdens can I help carry? Can I take some, some sort of grief away from someone? Can I, can I speak life, speak words of encouragement to one another? Am I missing out on this opportunity to fulfill the law of Christ? And then ask yourself an even deeper and honest, more honest question. Who am I preventing from fulfilling the law of Christ by not letting them in to my burdens? What walls am I putting up to my friends, to my brothers and sisters in Christ that is preventing the Holy Spirit to work in my life through them 
and, and work in their life through carrying my burdens. This is what Jesus is calling out whenever he says, you have not asked me where I'm going because you don't care about the burdens that I am carrying. Because if you did, your hearts wouldn't be full of sorrow. Your hearts would be full of compassion. He goes on. The verse 7 and You're probably wondering, Aaron, I'm a note taker. You haven't given me any type of outline or anything yet. For those of you who have not checked out just yet, here's your reward. Here's an outline as we go through the rest of the passage, starting in verse 7. We're going to see two things. We're going to see um, that Jesus is departing from us, does these two things. It is for our advantage and for his glory. For our advantage and for his glory. Glory, starting in verse 7, says this, Nevertheless, after he just said, you're not asking where I'm going, your hearts are filled with sorrow still. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away, for I do not go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him. To you Now, have you ever noticed uh, throughout the Gospels that in all of Jesus's ministry, obviously, if you go to Acts, you're going to see this over and over and over again. But all throughout Jesus's ministry, the, the disciples are never the target of persecution. It's always Christ, always Jesus. The only time that you might be like, well, Aaron, well, what about this one time? The only time that you might be able to bring up something else is what's about to happen whenever uh, Peter is following Jesus through his arrest. And then the crowd points him out and is like, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? And what does Peter do? He sees this persecution. He sees what's behind that question. If he says, yes, I am, then they're going to throw him right in there with Jesus. And so he says, no, I don't know that man. He says it three times, ultimately coming to the point where he curses the man that he just called Lord just hours hours ago. The persecution is always pointed at Christ in the Gospels. He's the one that's absorbing this. And he says, I'm going to go, and that persecution is now going to be transferred onto you. But he says... This is to your advantage that I go. That doesn't sound like an advantage to me. I mean, I feel like whenever we look at verse 2 in chapter 16, when he says, it's going to be to to your advantage that I leave, and and this is what's going to happen, as uh, Cam looked at last week, um, that we are going to be hated just as Christ is hated is what he was telling him. That doesn't sound like a very comforting thing. It doesn't sound like it's to our advantage. And then verse 2 of chapter 16 says, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Whoever kills you thinks they will be offering service to God. Now, uh, at least in part, we see that this is fulfilled in one of the apostles um, and the fact that he was the one that was persecuting the Christians. 
Paul, uh, or Saul, who later becomes Paul, uh, recounts his life as a Jew who was persecuting Christians in Galatians chapter 1. He says in, in verse 13 and 14, he says, For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. Saul and many of the other Jews, the ones that would be casting them out of these synagogues, sought to kill Christians as a service to God. And many succeeded. And when they couldn't succeed, what they did is kind of what we're going to see with Jesus is they brought in the governmental powers and say, hey, the core truth of this message is saying that Jesus is the king and it is directly undermining the throne of Caesar. And so what does the government do? They say, no way, not on my watch. I'm also going to step in and we're going to start, we're going to kill you as a service to Caesar, as a service to Caesar. Say that 10 times fast. Um, and this doesn't, this doesn't seem like an advantage. It's the point that we're trying to make here. How is this an advantage? You look at a brief summary of, of uh, Jesus' words in verse 2 played out in the lives of the disciples and early converts. Here's uh, kind of a quick list. Uh, Peter, James, and Andrew were crucified. Bartholomew was also crucified, but he was whipped beforehand. James, son of Zebedee, was beheaded along with the Apostle Paul. Mark was dragged through the streets of uh, Alexandria until he was dead. James, the half-brother of Jesus, was stoned by order of the Sanhedrin. Philip was stoned to death. Stephen was stoned to death. Matthew, Simon the Zealot, Thaddeus, and Timothy were all martyred as well. I don't know about you, but I would say, hey, Jesus doesn't seem like much of an advantage. We were a lot better off whenever you were by our side. And I think it's easy for us to think likewise in our Christian life. And as we try and uphold the commandments that the Lord has given us and love the Lord with all of our might, um, I've had this thought. I'm sure many of you in here have had this thought. Man, it'd be so much easier if I was in the first century, I got to watch Jesus turn the water into wine, or I got to see him walk on water, or, or feed the 5,000. If I could have seen him raise Lazarus from the dead, man, I'd never sin again. I'd know without a shadow of a doubt that what I believe in is true, and all of my actions would follow suit. It's a simple thought. And it seems seemingly harmless, but as I was studying this passage and and thinking through that thought, what I realized is that thought comes not from the Lord, but it comes from the devil. And you're like, okay, Aaron, that's kind of, you're kind of overreacting. I don't think it's coming from the devil, maybe just curiosity, blah, blah, blah. Well, I think what we're about to see here in the following verses is that it comes straight from the devil because that thought directly undermines what Jesus did by going to the cross, dying, being buried, 
resurrected, and then ascending on high to sit at the right hand of the Father. It's saying, man, it would be so much easier to live this Christian life if that never happened, if Jesus wasn't sitting on his throne. It'd be so much easier. That is a lie straight from the devil himself. Jesus tells us that if he doesn't leave his disciples, then he cannot send the Holy Spirit. Now, why is that? Why couldn't both of them exist? Why couldn't the power of the Holy Spirit be revealed like it was at Pentecost while Jesus was still on earth? We are told in the following verses, uh, 8 through 11, it says this, um, let me see. Uh, and when he comes, uh, that being the helper, when he comes, uh, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now, quick, brief, hopefully, uh, explanation of uh, the work of the Holy Spirit in the in terms of convicting. Okay, uh, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Verse nine. Uh, you and I are here this morning. You and I hold to the um, to the creed that is we believe upon Jesus Christ. The, the creed that John lays out for us very clearly as the purpose of this book, that Jesus is the Son of God and b- that by believing in him, we have eternal life. You and I only believe in that because the Holy Spirit convicted us of our unbelief. It says this wasn't going to happen unless Jesus fulfilled what was given to him to accomplish. The Holy Spirit, yes, convicted hearts of sinners like we saw uh, in, in David, right? That was a change of heart. There was repentance there. And he asked the Lord to renew in him a clean heart, a clean spirit. Yes, the Spirit was at work, but the power of the Spirit was not fully revealed until Jesus accomplished his work until Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. And when that happened, he sent out his spirit, the helper, so that you and I might be convicted of the fact that we are not honoring Jesus as king, that we do not believe that he is the son of God. And when we are convicted of this, we then repent of that sin. Every sin that you and I ever commit can be traced to to an unbelief that Jesus is who he says he is. And the Spirit works in us to bring that conviction so that we might believe and that by believing we might love and that by loving we might obey. So that's concerning sin. That's the conviction that the Spirit brings upon sin. Now, concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, the righteousness that he's talking about here is the righteousness of the Pharisees, of the Jews, of the law, this false righteousness that leads them to thinking that what they are doing and putting Jesus on the cross was an honor, was a service to their their God, the Father. That's 
what Jesus is exposing. He's saying, my resurrection exposes that their righteousness isn't righteousness at all. It's not going to happen unless Jesus departs from them. Now, what about judgment? It's pretty clear at this point. When Jesus sits the right hand of the Father on his throne, he is effectively and permanently crushing the head of the serpent. We still live in a fallen world. There is a ruler over this world. His name is the devil. But his outcome, his final judgment has already been made when Jesus sat at the right hand of the Father. This is why it is to our advantage. And this is why we cannot have the full power of the Holy Spirit until the full power of the gospel is revealed. And although it's amazing that Jesus turned water into wine, although it's amazing that he walked on water, and it's all signs to the fact that he is the Son of God, the power of the gospel is revealed in the resurrection and ascension to heaven. John Piper puts it this way. He says, if Jesus did not depart from us, the Holy Spirit could not have come in full Christ-exalting, gospel-applying, new covenant-fulfilling, deepest sin-convicting, Satan-defeating power. All of those aspects of the, of the power of the Holy Spirit's ministry are based on the death, the resurrection, and the triumphant ascension of Jesus to God's right hand as king. Christian, it is to our advantage that Jesus is not standing beside us day to day. Because what it means is that he is physically sitting on his throne. And he's not going to leave that throne until he comes again to bring us to himself. That is comfort. That is what is going to sustain us in this life. This life of hardship, this life of illness, this life of disagreements, this life of just pain. If we are not unified on this, the kingship of Christ, then we are not in Christ. Jesus prays in, in uh, chapter 17 that we'll look at in a couple of weeks. He says, Father, will you make them one just as we are one? Again, alluding to the Trinity. And this is what the helper does. He guides us into this truth. It says, continuing on in, in verse 12, we're almost towards the end. He says, I still have many things to say to you. But you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. Now, have you ever wondered how these, um, maybe for lack of a better term, uh, baffling dummies of disciples all of a sudden 
Um, after uh, Pentecost are these like very eloquent theologians that know everything there is to know about the Old Testament scriptures and New Testament scriptures and so on. The, the, the authors of our New Testament scripture, have you ever wondered how they go from, man, these guys, goodness, they, they might not get out of middle school. Like they, they just, nothing is clicking, right? And then all of a sudden everything clicks. This is what Jesus was talking about. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. And that's exactly what he does to the disciples. And you and I get to benefit from that. Now, here's what I want to make a really quick point here, um, hopefully. Uh, so something that modern Christianity, uh, I think, is a positive and a negative that we do is, uh, to one extent, we, we exalt the power of the Spirit and, and we say, you know, we need to be indwelt by the Spirit in order to be effective in our ministry. And, uh, or, or we say things like, man, that guy has the anointing of the Spirit. He's just really effective in the ministry that the Lord's given him. Or, um, or hey, you know, if you're struggling with a decision, maybe you should just the pray that the Spirit directs you. And, and, and we put a lot of emphasis just on this um, mystic feeling that the Spirit will provide clarity. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't pray and, and shouldn't ask the Lord to, to direct our steps and, and provide clarity and different things. What I'm saying is that that is a misapplication of what Jesus is saying here about the Spirit. It says he will guide you into all the truth. That is a direct application to the disciples, the apostles that are listening to this. Because again, they were baffling dummies and all of a sudden, they're the ones who are writing our scriptures. Why? Because the Spirit guided them in all truth, helped them put the pieces together. And Hebrews tells us that the Lord has given us all that we need in his word. Jesus goes on, and again, in the high priestly prayer to say, Father, sanctify them in your truth. Thy word is truth. How can you and I be guided by the Holy Spirit and the truth of God? By reading his word. Don't, don't just go and sit in a closet and ask the Lord to reveal himself to you if you're not in his word. He has given you his revelation. Yes, absolutely. Let the Lord guide you in, in prayer. Absolutely bring things to him. But don't for a second think that you can go through this life effectively as a Christian and ignore the words and the directions that he's given you. All right, that's the first point. Second point is as Jesus departs from us, one, the helper is sent for our advantage, and two, a helper is sent for Jesus's glory. Verse 14 and 15, as we wrap up here. He will glorify me, the helper, that is. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take 
what is mine and declare it to you. Now, real quick, two subpoints within this last point is that the most basic ministry of the Holy Spirit in this age is to bring glorification to Jesus. Jesus Christ being crucified for sins, risen triumphant over Satan, like we've said over and over again, for the forgiveness of our sins on the basis of his blood, ascending in triumph and kingly power in heaven and coming again. That's what the Holy Spirit glorifies. If the Holy Spirit is bringing you to any new revelation other than this, other than the glorification of Jesus, it's not the Holy Spirit. He will bring us to conviction. He will condemn and he will, he will bring judgment upon the devil, the ruler of this world. Number two, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in a person's life is the proof that you and I are God's. He says, he will get what is mine and declare it to you. This is reminiscent of John chapter 10, whenever Jesus says that there are other sheep that are not of this fold. And what the Lord, what the Father gives to me, no one can snatch them out of my hands. You and I, we see evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in two ways. We're convicted of our unbelief and we reflect a repentance and belief by loving and obeying the commands of Jesus. Jesus says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. How can we love Jesus? When, when as he showed us in, in verse two, we are naturally opposed to all things Jesus by the conviction of the Spirit. As I mentioned at the beginning, we're invited um, in chapter 13 and going through 17. It's like we're invited to this table. Effectively, theologically, reality is that you and I, when we have the Spirit indwelling us, we are sitting at the table with the triune God. Jesus is inviting us to experience the love that he, the Spirit, and the Father have been experiencing for all of eternity. We go from this world of pain and hurt and sorrow, and we look to Jesus and we say, because you died for my sins, because you resurrected from the grave, and because right now in this very second, you're sitting on your throne I get to experience love. I get to experience comfort. I get to have my joy filled. And when that happens, you and I get to bear one another's burdens with gladness. So how might we apply this today? Three things that I would encourage you guys to uh, pray this week that I'm, I'm encouraging and holding myself accountable. Y'all are welcome to hold me accountable uh, of praying these three things. 
Number one, Father, will you use your spirit to comfort me in my pain? Will you use your spirit to comfort me in my pain? Number two, Father, will you use your spirit to reveal my sin? Number three, Father, will you use your spirit to show me the glory of Christ? God is already saying that this is a reality of the believer. This is a reality that you and I get to experience, just as as Randy showed us about a month ago, whenever he looked at chapter 14, whenever Jesus gives them that that second part of, of that answer that Peter and the rest of the disciples didn't listen to, the part that says, let not your hearts be troubled. Why would our hearts not be troubled, Jesus? You're about to go to the cross. You're about to leave us. It is to your advantage and Jesus' glory that he physically departed from us 2,000 years ago and has sat on his throne ever since. Let not your hearts be troubled. The same power that defeated the devil dwells inside of you and me today. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you sent your son. We thank you that he was fully obedient, showing his love for you in his obedience. Lord, we thank you that the spirit that empowered Christ, that resurrected Christ, Lord, we thank you that he is alive in us today. And we thank you that your son is sitting in his rightful place on the throne at your right hand. Father, may that reality transform us. May it renew our minds. May you convict us of any unbelief that we might still have. Lord, as we sang earlier, Lord, we believe, but help our unbelief. Lord, we love you and we want to obey your commandments. We want to do it fully. We want to be able to bear one another's burdens. We want to be able to love one another well, just as you have loved us. Lord, may you unite us just as you, the Son, and the Spirit are united. Father, may we be about the work of the Spirit in the sense that we are trying to bring glory to your Son. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to do it practically in one another's lives. Help us to do it um, in our minds, in our hearts. Lord, will you create in us a clean heart, just as David prayed. Help us to love you. Lord, we love you. We pray this all in your son's name.